everybody. I'm Ashton Demery. And I'm Nicole Demery. And welcome back to our Atheist Bible Study, where I wish the intro to our podcast was just, hi. <laughs> I, I think that one's probably already taken. <laughs> I feel like I've heard it before. <laughs> okay, so first off, we just want to say thank you because we've been getting like a few more compliments, if you will, through like Twitter or like a couple people have found us on Instagram or Facebook. And it means it really I like words can't express how good it makes us feel. I know for me personally, I think about them almost like every day. Yeah. The nice I, things that you guys have said. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we kind of figured we were just going to be getting mostly hate on the Twitter for a while there. Yeah. But we it seems that the right people are finding our Twitter. Yeah. People which is who nice. actually want to listen and be a part of it. Yeah. I like it because we're still pretty small. So I feel like it's like it's nice when you're starting out with a small group of people who are like really supportive. It, it, it's amazing. Yeah. So a quick bit of news, the Catholic church has just come out and said that they cannot bless gay marriages because it is a sin. Which, Signed by the Pope himself too. Which kind of throws a wrench into arguments that I've had with my sister, or not arguments, but like discussions that I've had with my family in the past about how it was difficult for me to be religious because of their stance on gay people. My sister's kind of fired back with, well, Pope Francis said that gay people were okay. And I was like, at the time, it was like, well, what if another pope comes in and then says it's not okay? Like, where do we stand with that? And they were like, didn't really have an answer for that. But like now, yeah, <laughs> with this, I don't know, should, be, should I be a dick and like bring it up to them? Again? <laughs> I, I mean, I, mean, I don't have a comment on that, but <laughs> it, it does feel like a little bit of a reality check, right? Right. It's like. I think we all, I mean, non-religious people, Christians, everybody kind of has thought about Catholics as being kind of the progressive of Christian world, right? Because there's so many, you know, Latino and Latina people that make up the Catholic Church and stuff like that. And a lot of them tend to be more progressive, at least in, you know, they, they tend to vote for Democrats at a higher rate, at least than Protestants. Right? Okay. I was going to say, certainly I like, compared I to really, the, <laughs> I was like, I, I think the fact that women still can't be priests is still that's true yeah there's some aspects that like widely contradict that but yeah in terms of like How voting vote. at least and stuff yeah. like that okay, i see that compared to evangelicals they they feel a lot more progressive a lot less mm -hmm. judgmental towards gays and stuff like that mm -hmm. but i mean we saw in the last election the rate at which catholics voted for trump yeah you know not it wasn't just evangelicals and we're also seeing it now as much as pope francis has kind of given these loose, I think, half-assed statements of support yeah. to LGBT people. It's a lot like what some mainline Protestant churches do, where it's it's not really that they're saying that it's okay. They're just more or less trying to get people in the door. They're trying not to scare people away. Yeah. So you'll hear a lot of things like, we're not going to turn people away yeah. for being gay or something like that. We're not going to try to judge you. But they're still going to maintain their theology and pray for you to change or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I've seen people, I've seen Christians that are influencers online that consider themselves like progressive, saying stuff like, you absolutely you know, have a place in the Christian church as long as we all sin. And as long as you choose not to sin and be celibate, basically they're saying you should be celibate yeah. in order to be one of us the yeah. fact that you're gay is fine you just can't act, act on, on it. it yeah right and that's not the same thing and i think that's really 
even though it sounded a lot like the Pope was making statements of support, he was really just trying not to turn more people away from what is really a dying religion, right? Yeah, absolutely. The Catholic Church has one of the highest rates of of exits of any religious group. Mm-hmm. Well, and the other way that I see it is people will be like, okay, um, I hear that, but like, I still don't personally believe like they they consider themselves still to be Catholic or Christian or whatever, and then just kind of are like, like, fuck what they said about that. I don't agree with that. And for me, that's so different from how, like, I operate now, which is I, I don't shop at Hobby Lobby because they don't provide, they don't cover birth control for their employees. I don't buy Chick-fil-A because they donate to anti-gay establishments. Like, that's... That's just sort of how I deal with establishments that support big, major things that I don't agree with. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a really passive way of denouncing something to say, I'm still a part of this, but I don't agree with that Mm -hmm. without actually really speaking out against it at all. But, I mean, all all this to say, it's really not that surprising. These mm-hmm. kinds of, this kind of progress comes in sort of like, it, it comes in steps and then there's, there's backlashes and, yeah. you know, this is a part of that and Trump was part of that and the past few years have been a part of that. Yeah. Okay. So moving on to numbers. So I thought we would do things a little bit differently this time and give uh, a, re- like a refresher since I've been getting a little confused about where we are in the plot line of this whole story. So Previously on Atheist Bible Study, God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis that he would give him lots of descendants and that they would all live in this beautiful promised land that he would give them. And then fast forward to Exodus, Abraham's descendants are now enslaved by the Egyptians, which didn't actually happen. That's not a part of history, right? Yeah. Um, No evidence of it, at least. Right, other than the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which is where Moses comes in. And so Moses saves all the Jews from Egypt. They escape into the desert and they stop at Mount Sinai for a while. That's where we get the Ten Commandments and some more rules. And now here we are in Numbers where they are getting ready to move on again. And so, uh, sorry. And so Numbers is sort of the story of them traveling through the desert. Right. Okay. So where does Numbers fit with the documentary hypothesis? So we're still continuing in the priestly narrative. Uh, some scholars consider numbers all to be sort of priestly redaction slash editing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really this first part of numbers still fits, I think, squarely within the, the priestly tradition. But we're going to see it, it switch back yeah. uh, as we get into it later. Also, looking at kind of the timeline here, it's interesting and it's going to come up to note that Exodus 40 within the priestly text is where we first see the priests kind of insert their timeline. And it starts about a year after the Exodus. Mm-hmm. And then we go through Leviticus and a lot of Leviticus is just sort of priestly instructions like Leviticus one through seven. And then we get to Leviticus eight where they're doing the consecration and stuff like that. And then here we are at numbers one and we're still in the same spot a year from the Exodus. We haven't really moved forward in time at all. Mm-hmm. This is all just kind of happening right at the same time. Yeah. Okay, so no Numbers opens with a census of Israel, which is where it gets its name, Numbers. So God decides that it's time for Moses to count everybody, 
And they call this a census, but it's really more of a draft because they're only counting men over 20 who can fight in battle. So I don't know why they're giving it the nice name of a census. And so then from there, just sort of lists all of the men over 20, the amount of men over 20 in each tribe. And to me, it just sort of seems a way to give more importance to the tribes that have like that have more men over the tribes that have less men. And in total, it says that all of the men over 20 add up to 603,550, not including the Levites, because the Levites are given to the priests. Right. Which we'll get into more later. But Yeah, I didn't have a lot on this uh, section, except I'm going to get into the numbers a little bit later. But there's another contradiction here as far as where the tent of meeting is located. So going back to Exodus 33, uh, 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Here in Numbers 150, they shall tend to it and shall camp around the tabernacle. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. And you see it repeated again and again. It's like the center of everything. Mm -hmm. The tent of meeting is really emphasized as an important cultic object and a center of the philosophy for the priestly text. Okay. Okay, so next we just get an entire chapter of God dictating where everybody needs to camp, whether it be like on the east side or the north side or what have you. Then we get another little short section that lists all of the priest's names, so all of Aaron's sons. And then we go into a description of the duties of the Levites. So essentially all you need to know is that the Levites are now Aaron's bitch and they have to do everything for the priest. Now they're (laughs) the altar servers of the time. So they aren't allowed to perform any of the sacrifices or ceremonies by themselves. They're just told to like pitch the tent, take down the tent, take care of the tabernacle, set it up this way. And they're all given specific jobs based on who their father is. And then after that, then we get a census of the Levites. So now all the Levite men are counted separately from everybody else. And we're also told that the Levites can replace Israelites for the firstborn son, which is a thing that God was doing where every firstborn son had to be dedicated to the church. And then they could basically buy their sons back. Well, now he's saying that the Levites can step in for that. Yeah. Also in this section, I believe is where it talks about, right? So you were, you were saying that the, the Levites can't really do any of the, the stuff that the priests can. Right. They're just there but, to like set everything up. Yeah. And in fact, they and can't they, even touch anything. They can't look at holy things or they will die is what it says. Yeah. Which contradicts Exodus 33, where we have Moses's young assistant, Joshua. Remember, he goes into the tent of meeting with Moses. And he won't, he doesn't leave after Moses leaves. Joshua was a descendant of Ephraim. So he's not a descendant of Aaron. Okay. But then here it says any outsider who comes near the tent is going to be put to death. So now that we've taken a census of the Levites, I want to talk a little bit about the numbers they're throwing out here. Mm -hmm. And spoiler, this shit is not going to add up. (laughs) (laughs) So we come up with a total of 603,550 men if we don't include the Levites. And when they count the Levites, they count it a little bit differently. They're not like just counting men over 20. Mm-hmm. And this number has grown from the 600,000 that originally left Egypt. 
Now, whether or not that number was rounded, I, I don't really know. But we already know that there were 3,000 killed during the whole golden calf thing. And then there were some plagues that God put on them. Mm-hmm. So I would expect that number have gone down by now. Yeah. Plus whatever else they're dying of out in the desert. Yeah. And then if we think about these numbers for a moment, 600,000 leave Egypt. They were in Egypt for 400 years. And when we start this whole story in Joseph's time, there are 70 men. So we went from 70 to 600,000 over 400 years, which is an increase of 10,000-fold mm-hmm. over 400 years. So I decided to go and look at some like census data mixed with some uh, statistical estimates of how many people have existed on Earth in, in different time periods. Okay. And they're, they're actually pretty consistent numbers. But what we get is if we take to the year 2000, and the year 1600, so another 400-year period. In 1600, it es- uh, it's estimated there were about 550 million people on Earth. Mm-hmm. In 2000, there were around 6 billion. It's a change of about 11-fold. Okay. And that is considered one of the largest population growth periods in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. Probably the largest. Right? The 20th century had the highest growth rate of any century ever recorded. Right. Because we have modern medicine. We decimated the death rates of people from illnesses like measles. Yeah. And you're telling me a thousand times that was the growth rate of the Israelites in Egypt. Right. It's absurd, and there's just no chance. Yeah. And that's just the men, too. Where You're not even counting the women and the children, which right. the census numbers that you looked at were counting. Yes. Yeah. And then if there are 600,000 people leaving Egypt, I mean, 2 million is about on par with what the total population of Egypt is thought to be at this time. Egypt Mm -hmm. was huge. So if we take into account children and women, we probably have about 2 million total Israelites leaving. Mm -hmm. We have the entire population of a an area, half of it, if you say Egyptians and Israelites, leaving. And there is not a shred of archaeological evidence for that. There's no record of it in Egypt where they kept pretty decent records. Right. Not any. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, And the the closest I've seen to uh, a counter on this by Christians is that they think that they're not talking since all the numbers are even tens. They're talking about like the redemption value of people, and they have some explanation for why they think it is based on how much each person's redemption value is. What's a redemption? Because so when we get into the Levites, we talk about how there's a difference in the number of Levite children and firstborns. Okay. Well, it tells us how much each of those extra children is worth, and so they have to pay that to the priests to make up for the extra children that they haven't, that the Levites aren't covering for them. Okay. So they're saying that this is like redemption value. It's not actual number of people. So that just makes it a tenth of that, right? You still have a growth rate of a thousand. Yeah. Which is absurd. Yeah. Additionally, it doesn't really work if you consider the number of non-Levite children, uh, firstborn that we get, which is 22,273. It's not an even 10. And then... Of that 603,550, we're saying that only 22,273 of them 
our firstborn. Yeah. Which seems like a really low number for that number of people. And if you add up all of the Levites, the num the math does not work out to the 22,000 that is claimed, right? Because we say 22,000 Levite children and 22,273 firstborn that they need to make up for. So then they do the math and they say, you need to pay for 273 of them. Well, if you add up 7,500 Gershonites, 8,600 Kohathites, and 6,200 Merorites, you get 22,300. So we fucked up the math. So yeah, that's, that's where, where we're at with <laughs> the math of the Bible. It's a little absurd to go down that rabbit hole because, I mean, again, this is a podcast about, about the Bible, and we all know it's not true, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> I feel like maybe a part of this podcast is reminding ourselves of how obvious that really is. Yeah. I would say that, yeah. Yeah, I hate it when people are like, don't take the Bible too seriously. Like, this is all meant to be metaphors or whatever. And it's just like, shut the fuck up. Because there are people out there who take everything in this Bible seriously. And there are some people who seriously believe that you can find all the problems to your life within the words of this. So Yeah, even if they don't. We don't believe it's... in any of this. <laughs> like, we don't <laughs> think any of this is fucking true. Like, just suspend your belief for a little bit with us. And let us, again, make it more obvious to everyone that this is all bullshit. Right. So before we move on to some more of the, the cleanliness stuff again, there are a couple more contradictions here in the whole Levite section. If you look at Exodus 21, it has that whole discussion about somebody killing someone else and if they did it on purpose or if they didn't do it on purpose. Mm-hmm. So if they didn't do it on purpose, then they're going to be given a place to go. And then if they did do it on purpose, then they'll be pulled from the altar of Yahweh. Yeah. So what that means is if somebody didn't commit premeditated murder, they can, they can go to the altar as a sort of sanctuary, as like a safe place, mm-hmm. and then they would be given somewhere to, to flee to. But if you read all of this stuff in numbers, there's no way that that is possible because we're talking about how nobody can touch any of this if they're not a Levite. Right? There's no way somebody who is a has accidentally killed someone who might not even be an Israelite can come and run to the altar as a safe place mm-hmm. because anybody that's not a Levite will just die as soon as they get near it. And even a Levite, if they touch it or look at it wrong, they're going to die too. Mm-hmm. And then also, it's kind of a silly one, but the poles that are used to carry them Exodus says that they shall not be removed, but it says here that they put them back in when they carry them or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we get another little section again, going over how leprous people need to be removed from the camp. And then another section that goes over the consequences of sin, about how you have to pay one fifth back uh, to whoever you've wronged. Right. And in this one, if you're unclean, if you become unclean for some reason, you actually have to leave the camp mm-hmm. compared to in Leviticus, you just sacrifice something. Yes. Yeah. So that's completely different. Yeah. Okay. So the next part, the little headline or whatever you want to call it is concerning an unfaithful wife. So it says, you know, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. Good. When <laughs> it starts with it's that. It's just like, I knew that there, I was going to be reading misogyny i just thought i already knew all of the misogyny that was in the bible turns out i was so wrong it's gonna get so much worse (laughs) than you know okay so i never heard this before so apparently 
back then. If a man suspected that his wife has cheated because he feels jealous, then he needs to bring her to the priest and make a grain offering. The priest is going to put some dirt on the floor and put it in some water. He's going to mess up the wife's hair. He's going to hand her the grain offering that the husband has brought. And then it quotes, the water of bitterness that brings the curse, the, the dirt water that he just made, is held by the priest while he recites some magic words, basically saying that if she has cheated, then when she drinks this water, her uterus will drop and her womb will discharge. And if she hasn't cheated, then nothing will happen to her. She'll be fine. And again, I want to emphasize, a man can do this anytime he feel, anytime he just suspects that his wife has cheated. She doesn't actually have to have cheated. And he doesn't right. have to have any reason any evidence to think that he has, it's just if he's feeling jealous for some reason. So yeah. then yeah. So then the priest writes this curse down that he has just spoken aloud. He puts that in the water and then the wife drinks it and they just wait to see, you know, what happens. So if she cheated, then she'll be in pain, and if she isn't, then she'll still be able to have children. Yeah, it, the I think the worst part about this is just that right, any feeling of jealousy or possessiveness that the husband has mm -hmm. is validated by it and it you can go and force your wife to go through this clearly traumatic procedure yeah and embarrass her in this way yeah i would say it's more i mean like who the fuck's getting sick from drinking dirt water but yeah it's just kind of like are you serious man we're gonna spend our saturday going down to the temple and i'm gonna have to go drink puddle water yeah i, I mean also it seems pretty clear to me that they almost never did this it's i'll get into it a little bit later but it, it seems like it's a it, they 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 trump this up as a really scary thing mm -hmm. but they don't want to do it because obviously it doesn't do anything yeah unless they actually it, it's actually not really terribly clear to me what they're giving her it could be that they're giving her some kind of like plant extract in there mm -hmm. like some kind of potion that actually could be pretty shitty to have to drink yeah anyways have you read any of the controversies on this about whether it's talking about abortion no, but it did cross my mind because what what the hell does it mean that her uterus will drop and her womb will discharge? Does that mean that, like, if she did have sex, then that means that it'll get rid of the baby? Is that what the controversy comes in? I, I mean, it sounds a lot like something between, like, almost like a natural hysterectomy. I don't know if I'm even... Yeah, like no, a, it is a little unclear as to, like, what is physically happening to her. Because it is, are they trying to say, like, she won't be able to have kids anymore? Well, it definitely says that. It definitely yeah. says she will be barren. Okay. Which contradicts Leviticus, which says that she would, she and whoever had sex with her would die. Yeah. Per Leviticus. But, yeah, it essentially says that uh, she will be barren. Yeah. And it seems to me that a common reason you would think your wife is cheating on you is that she is pregnant and you don't think it's yours. Yeah. So it seems not unlikely that she would be pregnant at this event. Mm -hmm. They can't know if she's if she's not. Yeah. And if this happened, it sounds a lot like the baby wouldn't survive it. Right. Oh, yeah. So this right, does her sound uterus like is dropping they are out. for abortion in the case if you cheated on your husband. Yes. So we're back in the Christian gymnasium. Yeah. So here are the two responses they have to it, right? The first one, it, the funny thing is that they're both kind of fair. 
but in kind of revealing ways. Mm -hmm. So the first one is that we don't know that this is an abortion. Yeah. Right. We, we can't really know. And, and that's true because the Bible is pretty unclear a lot of the time. And this passage is exceptionally unclear. You'll see that it, it reads really weird because it repeats a lot of things. Mm -hmm. uh, there's like two places where it sounds like the consequence of her like dropping out her uterus happens. And there's two places where it feels like they're giving her the drink. Yes. Uh, so it, a lot of scholars think that it's like sliced together of two stories. But, I mean, essentially you can infer that the end goal is if she did have sex with somebody that she won't be able to carry that baby through. Right. Because and something is happening with her uterus. Yeah, and it's certainly not true that abortion is an unreasonable conclusion to read from this either. Yeah. But, yeah, the, the second one is my, my favorite one because it basically amounts to, yeah, who cares? God's done way worse. <laughs> That's basically what the argument is. Like, this guy quoted. David and Bathsheba, where God tells David that his son's going to die. Mm -hmm. And then another one is punished. Another person is, gets punished by being stoned along with their children. And then we obviously talked before about the murder of all the Egyptian firstborn. Yeah. Right. God's done way worse stuff than this. And that's absolutely. But that's a Christian true. argument. Yes. Because that's so weird. Like it's basically basically what they end up saying while this is like, it's OK because God did it. Oh, my right? God. What's wrong about abortion is that a woman chooses it. Oh! Right? <laughs> that's basically <laughs> what, they, what they're coming down to. Yeah. Is that that's what's wrong about abortion. If God does it, we're all his to do that to. Yeah. We all deserve it, oh. is basically what he says. We all deserve that. And it, it's, it's very telling because it matches a lot with this evangelical conservative mindset where they're so against abortion but care very little about maintaining a quality of life for families, right? Because yeah. that's part of like God's work. Mm -hmm. God can just let people die and be sick. Mm -hmm. That's not our problem. Yeah. Going back to what you said, like it's okay because it's what God wanted and like not what the woman chose. I feel like in any case you can replace God with, with what a man wants. Yeah. And yeah. So I do want to go into a little bit, a, there is only one midrash that I have on this to kind of understand some of the more detailed aspects of, of what people understood this to sort of look like, because again, it's not very clear. Mm -hmm. So there is a, there's a Torah scholar, a medieval Torah scholar named Rabbi Mosh bin Maimon, and he explains how this all goes down. <laughs> and we're going on an even crazier ride than what we've already been on with this. Yay. So basically, the woman would be taken to Jerusalem, to the temple, where she's going to sit before the high court. Here, they're basically going to play good cop, bad cop with her. Okay. And they're really going to just try to intimidate her. Okay. And if that doesn't work, they're going to take her from place to place throughout the land around the temple. And it says, I quote, they do this so that she will become tired and her spirits will sap. Mm. Like a wild horse. Gotta break their spirit. Yeah. Gotta tire them out. So at any point she confesses, she gets divorced and she receives nothing, right? Remember we talked about before, if you divorce a woman in, in this religion, you have to provide for her. Mm -hmm. But if she confesses to this, nothing. Right? Okay. Husband can divorce her. Okay. So they really want her to confess. Yeah. They really, really want that. So if she still can't, if they can't force a confession, they then take her to stand out in front of a crowd. Anyone can come, but they really encourage women to come. 
They love for as many women to come as possible because this is the perfect piece of propaganda to keep women in their place. Yeah. It literally says that it's there for because women can learn from it. Yeah. Modern day slut shaming. Yeah. Or not modern, but. And here, so here's my favorite line from all of this. So it says that if she usually dresses in white, she should dress in black. Okay. If black garments make her look attractive, she should dress in clothes that do not make her look attractive. Her, hand, her servants and handmaidens can't be there because if they were there, they would fortify her spirits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they would. Right? Because she can't feel good about this. You. Right? Because she's on trial for something we don't know she did yet, but she can't feel comfortable. Yeah, she can't feel safe. She can't feel... Yeah. But yeah, it's it like all this stuff, they, they want the confession. They don't really want people to do this, I think, because they know it, they know it doesn't... It's not anything. Right? Yeah. And then they add in some like you know, reasons why this, this won't work kind of like, like crossies or something. Mm. (laughs) Um, So if the, if the husband had also cheated, then there's no consequences for him, but this little thing won't work. Okay. And then if there happened to be anybody who has witnessed the cheating, then it also doesn't work because if somebody came afterwards and said, well, she survived or she, she didn't become barren, but I also saw that she cheated with my own eyes right that proves the whole thing wrong so they have to have a way out of that like well yeah. because someone saw her the test doesn't work okay gotcha. right and it's the same way if like you know the husband cheated too right if she knows she cheated and somebody else knows she cheated quickly the word's going to be out but it's like oh well maybe your husband cheated too and then also if she passes this test she gets stronger and she'll never have the shame of birthing another girl they'll just <gasps> I, it is. I'm. I'm. You know. Okay. But but it, it does say like, that she's gonna have all boys. She'll never have okay. another girl. Got you. It, it says if she would have girls, she'll have boys now. Right. Yeah. Her life's I mean, better now. What you now. said is implied. Yeah. Uh, and she can still be punished after this because right, if somebody comes out and says that she did commit adultery, then she still gets divorced with nothing. Great. Yeah. Uh, also, I think it's really important to note that. Do you know what the word adultery means as far as the Bible is concerned? I'm just going to say no and let you. Okay, well, the word adultery specifically means a married woman having uh, intercourse with someone other than her husband. So, yeah, that's the whole story of (laughs) the ordeal of the bitter water, as it's referred to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then one of the reasons, too, this whole thing is treated as kind of like, she's guilty until proven innocent and that there's no consequences for men just throwing this accusation is based on the kind of theology of all this is that she's already kind of guilty because she's made him feel jealous. Well, so how he starts this whole thing is, well, what would have happened is that her husband told her to stay away from some dude. And then she was seen alone with that dude right so she's already brought kind of guilt upon herself i just said that she's already made him jealous that she's made him yeah i guess so i just like made him feel jealous could be like just looking at uh, yeah okay so yes (laughs) moving on we get a description of something called the nazarite vow which is just a special little vow that you can take where you aren't allowed to drink any wine or cut your hair. Yeah, you basically become like a Yahweh hippie. Mm-hmm. 
And then we have a story of the leaders being brought to the altar and all of them have to bring an offering. So we just get a full description of what every leader brought to the altar. Yeah. Yeah. It's another one of those really annoying ones to read because it's so repetitive. Yes. Next we have the seven lamps. Literally just a description of some lamps being built. Yeah. So this whole section here is, you read like the very first line of it, it's supposed to take place on the same day as Exodus 40. Okay. Because it's the day that the tabernacle is set up. Oh, okay. But it makes no sense if you think about that timeline. So that would be in the first month of the second year after the Exodus is how it's described in Exodus 40, which is a month before Numbers 1 starts. Numbers 1 starts two months into the second year after the Exodus. And then you also, you go back to Leviticus 8, right? So we went from Exodus 40, we had seven chapters in Leviticus that are just like priestly instructions, and Leviticus 8 picks up also on the same day that the tabernacle is set up, and that's when the priests have a bunch of sacrifices and stuff done so that they can be ordained. Mm -hmm. So during that time, Aaron and all the priests are like locked in a tent of meeting for seven days. It says, you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until a day when your period of ordination is complete. But it is 8.33. Well, now we have a 12-day ceremony where they're sacrificing all these animals and the, air, the priests are leading it. Yeah. Which can't, you can't happen. Can't You're happen. supposed to be locked up. They're yeah. locked up in the tent of meeting that entire time. Yeah. And it explicitly, we know it's the same priest because it explicitly names Ithamar in this section. Mm -hmm. All right. So then we get the consecration of the Levites. So the Levites who are going to serve the priests have to wash and shave their whole bodies, uh, give an offering, and then are presented to Aaron and his sons. And I have listened and watched enough murder documentaries and cult documentaries to say that this sounds like a Oh yeah. This is a hundred percent they are doing. When they start shaving themselves, boys. I was yes, like okay. We had we read a book about uh prisons in America. Yeah. And it reminded me of that because in American prisons there are men who are forced into basically be like sexual Yeah. They're basically forced into prostitution. They are like forced by these men who are raping them to always walk around with their penises like tucked in and to basically like present sort yeah. of as a woman and i was absolutely getting that vibe when they're asked to shave their whole bodies because obviously you know women you know have hair on their bodies naturally but we are also less natural we are also less hairy than men are so when you are asking younger men to shave their whole body to me it sounds like because you want them to look more feminine yeah so very creepy and also just you know, at the beginning of this podcast, we talked about how the Catholics had some shit to say about how they couldn't bless sin, where meanwhile, they're paying out millions to all of these, like, you know, sexual assault allegations. Yeah, and have been covering it up. Mm -hmm. Also here, it determines, like, the years of service of the Levites, when, what ages they can be. Yeah. So it says... 25 and up or 25 to 50 really mm -hmm. well back in numbers four when they're taking the census it says from 30 years old up to 50 
everyone who qualified to do the work of the service. So, so again, we changed the age. Yeah. Okay. Next, they fought. Oh, sorry. So next, they celebrate Passover at Sinai. And there's this whole thing about how even people who have touched dead bodies or are out on a journey may participate in it. Then we get this whole explanation of how they start moving camp by following this fire cloud that hangs out above the the tent where the altar is. And yeah, so they're just aimlessly following this cloud around in the desert, hoping it will lead them out of it. Right. I, basically the exact rec- replica of the story from Exodus 13 mm-hmm. before Sinai. Yeah. Then there's this whole thing about silver trumpets and how they're going to be used at war. And then again, it says that now they're leaving from Sinai. So they're leaving Sinai. The people are getting restless again. They start complaining. So God burns some of them and Moses has to pray for him to stop burning yeah. them. <laughs> the people are upset because they're tired of eating manna. They're craving fish and melons, and they're saying that these are all things that they used to get in Egypt, and they really want to go back to Egypt. (laughs) (laughs) And God says, oh, I'll give you something to cry about. Exactly. The people start crying, and then God gets angry. So Moses gets angry, and Moses is like, why do I have to babysit all of these fucking babies? They never nursed from my titties. I'm not their mom. Like, why me? If this is how you're going to treat me, just fucking kill me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he literally says <laughs> He literally, said, literally the says The quote that. is, if this is the way you are going to treat me, put me to death at once. <laughs> yep. So then God comes up with a solution to this problem. He says that Moses needs to gather the 70 elders and God will take a little bit of the spirit that he gave to Moses and give it to these 70 elders so that they can help Moses rule all of the people. Yeah. Which I thought we already solved this problem. Yeah, because we, we had a whole conversation <laughs> about, yeah. And then in the back of God's head, he's still thinking about how the people said that they didn't like his manna. And so he's like, all right, I'm going to give the people meat. They're going to get their fucking meat. They're going to get so much goddamn fucking meat. They're going to wish they never saw meat again. They're going to have meat coming out of their fucking nose. And <laughs> <laughs> he's like... He's like a mom with like picky kids that have been just like picking at her. Oh, you want noodles again? That she worked so goddamn hard, you know, day in and day out to put new meals on the table. Yeah. And they're complaining and she just destroys them. Yeah. I'm tired of this, Grandpa. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So then Moses is like, hey, now, like, there's over 600,000 people. How are you going to get enough meat for you to be able to do that? And God is like, just watch me. I'm going to do it. (laughs) And then we go back to the elders. So then the elders are gathered. They're given the spirit. They start to prophesize and then never do it again. Yeah, they learn their lesson. Yeah. (laughs) Two of the elders stay back in the tent when everybody else leaves and they keep going. And then somebody titles on them and Moses is like, I don't give a shit. Like, God and I have something special. I'm not jealous of <laughs> those guys. Yeah. So then um, God sends the people a bunch of quails, and then he gets mad again and sends a plague. Yeah. And so why would you, why do they worship this God? <laughs> like, yeah. 
Uh, so this section is interesting because we see a lot of stuff that we've seen before, mm-hmm. but different. Yeah. And it contrasts really strangely with what, like everything we just read. So I'm going to go through a few of these contradictions. I hope it's not like boring the hell out of people when I just go through all these contradictions. But I mean, that's. Let us know. It's what we're. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of what we're doing here. I mean, a, a lot of this book is really kind of dry, but like a lot of what we're doing is all the ways in this which this book we're debunking yeah well and also it, i it it shows how this book is actually composed in the real history of it mm-hmm. so we start with the cloud and fire so like we said that is basically a repeat story but then we turn around at numbers 10 and suddenly we are leaving sinai all over again mm-hmm. But in this version, right in the first, the cloud and the fire, Yahweh's leading the way. Yahweh is in charge. Yahweh's telling them where to go. So in number, Numbers 9, whenever the cloud lifted from the tent, then the Israelites would set out, and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the Israelites would camp. And then in Numbers 10, 29, Moses uh, is actually talking to Hobab, son of Rule the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. And we've talked about him before. Sometimes he's Jethro, and then sometimes he's Rule, and now... It's unclear if we're talking about Moses' brother-in-law or Hobab is actually his father-in-law and rules his grandpa-in-law. Uh, but he talks to him and he says, come with us and we will treat you well. And then Hobab's like, I kind of want to go home. Then he's like, don't leave us for you know where we should camp in the wilderness and you will serve as our eyes for us. And then basically the cloud is still there, but... Moses is telling the cloud where to go. Mm-hmm. Moses is like, all right, cloud, get up. We're going. <laughs> and Hobab's leading the way through the wilderness. And then in the next part of this, when we get to the whole Israelites complaining in the wilderness, for one, is a very different kind of version of Yahweh. We've gotten away from all of this priestly text stuff has been very focused on the divine holiness of Yahweh. There hasn't been a lot of, like, mean-spirited, like, pissed-off Yahweh yeah. just messing people up. Like, people die as soon as they touch Yahweh's stuff, but mm-hmm. it almost seems like Yahweh can't control that. Yeah. It's just his holiness. Right. Right? So now we're back to that, back to angry Yahweh, and the Israelites are now complaining about meat. And let's consider what just happened in Numbers, what was it, 7? Mm-hmm. So in Numbers 7, let's count how many animals they sacrificed. <laughs> 36 bulls, 72 rams, yeah. 72 lambs, and 72 goats. Yeah. And also, we're not addressing the fact that God's already done the quail thing. They yeah. haven't, it says here that they only ate manna, right? It says, we remember we, the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, but now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Mm-hmm. But they already got the quails back in Exodus. Well, and it says before that they only eat manna for, for these 40 years, so that's all they're eating. Right. And yeah, it's weird because it, it kind of reads like, so I said that God gives them the quails, and then he gets angry and he gives them a plague. It kind of sounds like he gives the plague to the people who crave the quails, who start eating yeah. the quails. Uh, and then we have the creation of the judiciary again, where we already did it back in Exodus, uh, Exodus 18, where Moses chose able-bodied men from all Israel and appointed them as heads over people. That was at 
Jethro's suggestion. Mm -hmm. But here Yahweh is telling him to do it. Right. And we just kind of did this in Numbers 1 where we picked all the, like, sort of chiefs of the people. Yeah. So we're doing it again and again. And uh, also here when they kind of gather together, an astute reader will notice (laughs) that they are going outside the tent camp, the tent of meeting. We just left those few chapters where they kept reminding us how it's at the center of the camp and everybody's camped around it. And now instead of going to Paran, which is what we talked about just a chapter ago, mm-hmm. we're now going to Hazaroth. Mm. So all of this to say that what most scholars believe this to be is one is a transition out of the priestly text. And if you look at this next to Exodus 24, mm-hmm. it actually reads somewhat consistently. There's still all, a lot of contradictions. But the storyline, the timeline makes a little bit more sense. Okay. It's not like we're jumping back yeah. to a different, completely different story. Uh, so this is referred to as the J.E. text. So the theory that scholars have about this is that probably sometime around 722 BCE, which is when Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, fell to the Assyrians, mm-hmm. the northern scribes and stuff would have gone south to Judah and taken with them a lot of this, these stories. And then the Judean scribes would have maintained them. And then at some point, they decided to kind of edit them together and make one story out of it that was smooth. Okay. And then later on, sometime later, the priestly redactors and scribes come along and they create their own narrative and they decide to set it backward in time right in the middle of the JE text. Mm. So yeah, that's why this whole part just kind of like comes out of left field and like doesn't really mesh with any of what's going on here. Yeah. Um. So far, two out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> Not that great of a plot line. Very hard to follow. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's all we have for today. We'll see you again next time and we'll keep talking about numbers. Bye, y'all. Later. Later.